it's typically out here, at least, you know, where we are, it's typically not where exactly on the lake somebody's fishing. Like that's not why they're catching fish. We got We have lakes that are 30 acres, you know, 40 acres, and they're stocked with somewhere between five and 8,000 trout a year. Like there's lots of fish, you know, there's lots of fish. It's not about where they are. It's about the type of water they're fishing. They're out near the weed beds. Like, then you shouldn't be out in the middle of the lake if they're hammering fish. Like, you should go find a weed bed. You know, if if they're out in the deep water catching fish, okay, now you should go try to find some fish out in the deep water. But it's typically, you know, and this is from where we are here, it's typically not a specific spot on the lake. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Fly Crate. Get double the flies when you join their monthly fly club for a fun way to learn fly fishing and discover new flies each month. Just use the code DOUBLETHEFLIES at checkout or stock up on flies for your next trip and get free shipping on all orders of $15 or more. Go to www.theflycrate.com to adventure by the fly. We're going to try something a little different that we've been meaning to do for quite some time. We're looking to get a little more interactive with you, the listeners. So if you've got some ideas regarding topics, uh, some questions maybe you'd like to ask some of our guests, or maybe you yourself would like to come on the podcast, shoot me an email at mark at flyfishing97.com, and we'll try the best to get your questions answered. At the same time, get some of the guests that you would like to hear from. I'd also like to take a minute just to thank you for downloading the podcast. We've, I'm always amazed by the, the regions we're getting downloads from. The States uh, is number one, then Canada, then Sweden, Australia, Norway, the UK, Spain, Vietnam, Indonesia, Ireland, Germany, Brazil. I, I, it just boggles my mind when I look down the list. New Zealand, India, Mexico, the Netherlands, Thailand. I, I really think it's a, a testament to what a global pastime fly fishing really is. So again, thanks for listening. I'll try to get to whatever uh, region of the world or of North America you're listening, whether it's still water, rivers, uh, ocean, bait fish, minnows, you name it. We want to tailor the show to your waters, if you will. This time around, we want to welcome to the program Nick Slikonich. Now, Nick is out of northern Alberta, out of uh, Athabasca. He's a teacher, fly fishing writer, and presenter. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll talk about uh, what you've been up to and some of your fly fishing experience, but I always want to start off with uh, how you came to discover fly fishing. Yeah, for sure. Um... I'd actually been fishing my whole life already, like regular gear stuff. And I was 12 years old. I had actually just been reading some magazine articles about fishing some of the brown trout streams in Western Alberta and just thought to myself, man, that sounds like, like the coolest thing I could imagine doing as far as fishing goes. And nobody really in my family fly fished at all. And I just kind of asked my parents for some fly fishing equipment for my birthday or Christmas. I don't remember which. And I was lucky enough to get some. And then it's basically been just fly fishing ever since I was, ever since I was a teenager, I, we went around uh, 
the first couple of years, it was a little, little tough going to get a lot of fish as I'm sure a lot of beginners can imagine, but I got my, uh, my younger brother started fly fishing with me and our, our two best friends, Tim and Andy, they, uh, started off on with the fly rod as well at the same time. So we sort of all grew up fly fishing, um, together. Now this, this all started in Fort Saskatchewan, which is just outside Edmonton, not exactly a hub for any kind of fishing, let alone fly fishing. But, uh, Hmm. that's a, that's where we started. How big of a town is Athabasca? Athabasca is really, it's a really small town. It's only about 3,000 people. I myself don't even live in the town. I actually live in the country up here. So tell me about your home waters. Like, what does that look like day to day? The type of, uh, what species are you targeting? And, you know, without giving away too many secrets, where are you doing a lot of your fishing? Yeah, for sure. Um, while growing up, my family has a cabin and had a cabin for a long time on, uh, on Baptiste Lake, which is just actually just west of Athabasca, like 15 minutes. So I grew up fishing there for pike and walleye, and that's mostly what we've got around here. Uh, within like an hour of my house, we've got for sure 30 places I can go uh, fly fishing for pike, which is which is really fun. It's what I spend a lot of my time doing. And then there's a few small trout lakes, you know, under 80 or 90 acres that are within about an hour and a half. So that's definitely what I spend most of my time doing is stillwater trout and then pike. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about some of the writing that you've been doing. How, how did you get the bug for uh, for writing? So when I was uh, when I was about twenty years old, I started actually taking an adventure tourism and outdoor recreation diploma at Lakeland College in Vermilion. And in the summers, I started guiding for Dave and Amelia Jensen, who had actually I'd known them for a long time. They're actually quite good friends of mine. And Dave knew the the publisher and owner of the Alberta Fishing Guide, who was Barry Mitchell. And I, I'm, I think he, he just told Barry, you know, I got this guy working for me who does a bit of writing on, you know, online stuff. Why don't you see if he's got anything that would work for the magazine? So Barry called me up and I, you know, I did a piece for the Alberta Fishing Guide. I don't even remember the year, but it was 12 or 13 years ago for sure. And, uh, I started writing for them and I've branched out from there to a few other kind of Canadian magazines and online things. And, you know, just enjoy that. How, how big of a part now, um, to writing articles is the photography aspect of it? Is that something you, you do as well? Oh man, the, the photography, that's what gets you in the door with magazines is what I've been told by most of the editors is your writing can be fantastic, but it's the photography that'll kind of get you noticed. Um, Hmm. it's, it's huge, but to be honest, I've had lots of pictures published that are like, I take them with my cell phone. I've got, you know, I've got some uh, mirrorless, you know, you can, you know, interchangeable lens, this and 15 megapixels, whatever. But a lot of it is, you know, if you can compose a good picture, it doesn't matter what you're using, but it's got to be good photography. It can't be fuzzy out of focus, overexposed. They want, they want good things. Right. So are you using a tripod for most of this? You know what? I'm, I'm not using a tripod um, for a ton of it because I'm, I'm fishing out of a lot of boats. Right. You know, a tripod isn't uh, going to... You're just as wobbly in the boat with a tripod as you would be freehanding it. So you just you take a series of pictures as fast as you can right. uh, so that you can keep the fish in the water and all that kind of thing. And you kind of hope that some pictures in that sequence will work out is really what it is. You sitting in your fly tying room right now? 
Man, you could probably hear me I, knocking over like I heard, bobbins and nail polish and stuff. <laughs> I know that sound. It sounded like a bobbin hitting the table. What are you working on? At the... It was actually a it was actually a Sal, Sally Hansen's right now. Oh, you're, you're just finishing off a fly. Okay, yeah, yeah. What are you, what are you tying right now? Yeah, I was I was tying some chronomids because this weekend I managed to get um, I got some water in one of my dry bags, which rusted out a few chronomids in one of my boxes. So I have to replace those. What kind of chronomid fishing are you doing uh, in the Athabasca area? Like, what, what what are your go-to patterns? Are we talking chromies? Are we talking? Tell us what you're you're tying up. Yeah, sure. Um, well, one thing that I've noticed out here is that a lot of our chronomids we can use, kind of in the central northern region of Alberta, they can be a little bit bigger than what I often read about guys using um, more in the interior BC. Like a standard for me, honestly, would be a size twelve curved scud hook so mm-hmm. something in the half inch long range um, typically you're going to use bead heads just because we can sink them down but um i would use blacks and reds or probably if i had to pick one i would go black and red yeah black black, black and red size red rib yeah yeah that's a pretty good pattern what what are you using for are you using tungsten for beads what are you using up front and and, and do you put a collar on them i typically actually just am going to use a brass bead mm-hmm because in Alberta, we can use up to three flies. So I don't have to worry about just my chronomid being able to sink down. I can, I can put a big heavy leech, you know, 20 inches above it, which is going to help it get right down to the bottom. So I don't have to use really, really heavy weight on the chronomid itself. Right. You can use a bit of lighter weight. You can use no bead. It's not going to matter too much. As far as collars, throw some on, but it's not an urgent thing. In my opinion, are you fishing Nick a lot of those chronomids in your home waters on indicators? You fishing them on sink lines? What does that look like? Probably 90 percent with the indicator. You can use uh, mm-hmm. you can use floating lines and do the naked chronomid. I've been actually practicing the last couple of years a little more with midge tips and and intermediate ghost tips, things like that. Uh, just for something different right. to do, so you're not always relying on the indicator as much. You're not having to adjust depths as often, but mostly you're fishing below an indicator. You know, the same six to twenty inches off the bottom. Yeah, that's kind of the the honey spot, isn't it? Uh, for a lot of that. Yeah, um, I think too. You know, when you get down that deep, the the fish just kind of lose a lot of inhibitions too. They're not going to think twice when it, you know if if it's up near the surface. They're definitely more cautious. That's that's true, and I think, well, they're way more cautious, and they can also see better, right? The closer you are to the top, mm-hmm. the better the light penetration. Um, sure. Actually, one of the things I, so I te- I'm actually a grade four teacher, and one of the things in the curriculum we've got um, here in science is light and color. And they teach, you know, you teach the kids Roy G. Biv, so that's the color spectrum, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. And that's also the order of mm-hmm. that colors disappear in either murky water or deep water. So the first color to disappear in murky or deep water is going to be red. And then the next one's going to be orange, which if, when you think about what you're putting on a lot of your chronomids for hot spots, you know, you're putting a red collar or you're throwing the red rib on, or you're putting some orange and at 20 feet, I don't know how much difference it really is going to make if I have a red rib on there or not. I think, it, I think the silhouette's way more right. important down there. So do you follow the rule also, Nick, when you're fishing deep, usually stick with darker colors? 
I'm going to usually stick with darker colors. And if I can throw flash on there, just so maybe it shows up with that little bit of light that does get down there, I'm going to try my best to make my fly stand out a little bit for sure. Maybe I'll throw a, a like a flash wing case on or something too, just so that, you know, if that fly twitches or turns, it gives a little sparkle. Just anything so that sure. fish turns and looks at what I've got on there. When you're finishing off these flies, are you uh, are you using the Sally Hansen clear coat most of the time, or is, is that your go-to? Most of the time, I'm going to use that. I, I do some uh, UV resin, and also I'll, I'll brush on Zapagap. Trouble with Zapagap is it, it takes a little longer to dry, and you've got to be really careful not to touch it, or else it'll turn white. But it's definitely, the Zap will give you a really like super durable fly. Hmm. Interesting. What What do you like to tie on as far as equipment? What do you What What vice is sitting in front of you right now? Well, I it's a Renzetti. I think it's a Presentation Two Thousand. Yeah, is what I what I think. And as far as tools, well, my bobbins are uh, they're actually a Griffin bobbin with the ceramic insert, and I like the ones with the kind of sh- with the short uh, with the short tube at the top because I leave them. I like to have them really tucked into my hand, and that way there's only a quarter inch of the the tube sticking out so it's really easy for me to control that's a good for tip stiff, i i totally agree you with know, you that's I like I, that. I love that i love that short one i can really tuck it in there and i use it for pike i use it for for trout flies like i don't i don't even have other bobbins it feels weird when i hold anything else really i've used them for so mm-hmm. long for scissors yeah um i i have dr slicks and they're the they're the ones that have not the curved blades but the curved shank and they're tougher okay. to come by. They're tougher to come by now. I, I find all of mine at Trout Waters in Kelowna. When we go down there, I buy uh-huh. like three pairs of them because I burn through them all. And it's it's not always guaranteed that I can find them in our local shops here in the city. I, I sometimes can, but they're not always in there. And these are the ones that I can keep in my hand with the bobbin. And to me, they feel comfortable. So that's yeah. just what I've, I've, I've used this stuff for like 20 years. So I'm kind of just setting my ways now. Yeah, Nick and and Savasar are sure uh, sure helpful. I spend a lot of time there myself. Yeah, that's if I could pick one shop to go, always find something new and something useful. In it, like that's that's got to be one of the top couple shops to do that for sure. So here's a question for you, Nick. So in yep. in your hometown of Athabasca, is there a fly shop? Is there somewhere you would would go to talk fly fishing, or you know, is uh, is that kind of hard to find? So we've got a, a sports store called Cheap Seats that does half of the store is hunting and fishing. And they, I actually, I was surprised the other day I went in there and I found some coated, coated stranded steel wire to tie pike leaders because I had run out of my usual stuff and they had so that in the shop there for me to use, which was great. They sell some fly fishing equipment for, but it's, it's, it's going to be for you run out of something and you go there and hope they've got it. In Edmonton, we've got uh, a fly shop opened up a year and a half ago called Reed's Fly Shop. And I actually, I know Reed because when I was in university, I when my summer or my part-time job was working at Wholesale Sports in the fly department. And Reed worked at the other Edmonton location at the same time. So we've now got a designated fly shop in Edmonton, which is great because we never had one since the 90s when yeah. Denny's Fly Shop closed down. So. Some of the, it's definitely not like it used to be 30, 40 years ago. There seems to be a lot more uh, hunting, fishing shops. And now with the online stuff, I, I hear you. It gets, um, it's, I mean, how long of a drive is it, Nick, from you to get to Edmondson? 
for me to get to Edmonton, if I don't hit any any rough spots, is only about an hour and twenty minutes. So it's okay. really not that bad. Like it's not a little jaunt in the park, but it's not a marathon anymore. Yeah. It's uh, but I, I don't like to have to go if I you know if I run out of thread, it's not quite the drive. <laughs> Who who would you say has been the biggest influence, or you could name a couple if if you have them uh, on your fly fishing? Like who have you been influenced by the most? So when I was when we were growing up in Fort Saskatchewan, my friends, my brother, and myself, um, at the public library, they actually had the Jack Shaw Fly Fishing Stillwaters book in the library. So when I'm 14 years old, and that's the only fly fishing book in the whole city I grew up in, I checked out that book a lot. So Jack Shaw is definitely up there as far as uh, lake fishing goes. They also had a VHS of Joe Humphrey's Trout Tactics, which was uh, a, basically a nymph fishing video for streams. And I we watched that a whole lot, and I still use a ton of that information nowadays. And if you think about it, there's there was lots in that video that's kind of a precursor to the Euro nymphing and all that, where he would use a weighted core of two or three feet on just a monofilament line to get his nymphs down in rivers like the Madison. So Joe Humphreys, I, I take a lot of what he says, you know, and I, I think about it quite long and hard and how I can use that with my own fishing. And then of people that I, that I personally know, probably, um, probably the biggest one would be Dave Jensen, who gave me um, my first guiding. He gave me my guiding job for fly mm-hmm. fish Alberta. He hooked me up with uh, with Barry Mitchell, which started my which started the writing that I would do. And past that, I mean, he's just been a really good friend to me. And he's, you know, he just basically gives me the motivation and the and the kick in the butt to sort of do what I do what I wanted to do with fishing and fly fishing. Right. Uh, as far as work and and career, just passion, you know. It's, it, it always amazes me how passionate fly fishers are in general. And you've got to be passionate to not just go and do it all the time, not just tie all the time, but to sit down, write about it, take photographs. Is there anything uh, you've got in the mix right now you're working on as far as writing? You know what? I, I don't particularly at the moment. We've got, uh, actually, my wife and I were expecting our second kid in like six weeks. Nice. So, Congrats. So... I'm not, I'm not worried too much about what I'm going to do for writing at the moment so much as, uh, you know, we're trying to enjoy the summer and get on the water. And we just got back from, from some fishing in the, in the Kootenays. So we're just trying to live our life right now at the moment. And I'm not thinking honestly too much about what I'm going to write about in the next little bit. <laughs> That's an honest answer. If you could imagine your perfect day on the water, Nick, as far as, the species you're targeting. I like to get you to paint a little picture on, on your ideal day on the water. Well, to give you an honest answer, I'd have to give you three situations. Okay. Cause there's, I, in addition to the, to the still water trout and the pike on the fly, I love brown trout streams. When I started fly fishing, the article that made me want to take up fly fishing was small streams, brown trout, dry flies, and not, not hatch matching, but just go into the water and you see browns that will come up and take like a terrestrial, like a hopper or a beetle or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I would say for as far as streams go, my ideal day would be 
late July or early August on like a smooth water brown trout stream in in probably western Alberta somewhere in you know the red deer and west kind of area mm-hmm. with uh, a little bit of a breeze just enough to knock some of those grasshoppers on the water and I would be walking up with a good friend on the other bank so we could try to sight fish some some browns and whoever's got the best casting angle gets to take the fish and hopefully you can do with that all on dry flies situation two would would probably be the the last week of may on trout lakes you'd have a little bit of a breeze you'd have lots of hatches you know it's it's late may you could have chronomids you could have some damsels going could maybe have mayflies some dragonflies starting to come off and you'd have really willing rainbows. I'd, I would throw in probably brown trout if I could to get the odd brown. Cause I just, I think brown trout are a fantastic fish streams and lakes. They're just, they're tough to beat. They're such a great looking fish when you get a nice healthy one. Mm-hmm. And true predators. Brown trout are like the pike of the trout world. Yeah. They just, I just view them as they're just a marauding fish. You could catch them in 20 feet, yeah, doing coronamids or doing, you know, summertime dragonflies or whatever you're going to do. But I view them as, okay, I'm going to throw some kind of big meaty leech bait fish thing Mm -hmm. along reeds or along some down timber because you just think there's got to be a brown somewhere near there that's just going to charge out and just want to kill this thing that I'm casting. Nothing looks more exciting to me, Nick, than some of this footage I've seen kind of in the dusk, you know, just kind of twilight as it's getting dark, big mouse pattern, you know, or a muskrat type thing flopping in off, off a undercut bank and all of a sudden, wham. I, yeah, I haven't had a chance to do, or, you know, I haven't, I haven't experienced that too much just where I've been fishing. Right. I think that would be the coolest thing. Yeah, I'm with you. Now, a, a close a close thing that i have had the chance to do a lot of is getting big pike smashing stuff yeah <laughs> you know one of the best part about pike fishing is when you're fly fishing for pike i mean you can do it at all depths right like you can do it 30 feet you can do it at two feet same as trout fishing you can wherever the pike live you can find a way to get at them but the absolute best is when you're getting them in less than you know 10 or eight feet of water and when they're really cruising around, like, you you know, you don't have to fish really specific spots. You can actually go and just cover big weed beds or big shoals in the lakes. And the pike will just charge at what you're casting, you know. Hmm. You could, we hooked, Dev, actually Devin came out here and uh, my friend from Edson and in the spring, we went to some lakes and we were doing, I don't know if you know what the figure eight is, but you basically retrieve your fly all the way to the boat and then you stick your rod in the lake. Right. And you do a couple big loops with the rod with only a foot and a half of line out. And you do that when you've got a big pike following that hasn't taken your hook yet. Hmm. And you, you loop that around and nothing gets your blood, you know, boiling faster than a 10 or 12 pound pike slamming a 10 inch streamer with only 20 inches of line sticking out of your rod tip a foot off the boat. Yeah, that's, that looks crazy. I've seen it done. I have not <laughs> had that thrill, but I imagine that gets the blood going. Uh, 
yeah, there there was a few hoots and hollers when that starts happening. I don't know. I don't, I'm not one for making a lot of noise on a lake, but it's tough to contain yourself when you're talking about your uh, your friend Devin there, and I gotta thank him, Devin Sieben. Well, he he was out my way looking for some smallmouth fishing and just sent me a message on Facebook, and you know I didn't know him from Adam, but he said he listened to the yeah. podcast and whatnot, and so I said, you know what, why don't why don't we go fishing? And uh, you know it's kind of weird when you meet somebody you don't know who you're you have no idea who it's going to be. We're going to drive halfway up into the bush with somebody I don't know, right? So he was kind of the same boat as me, like oh, okay, who, who is this guy? But uh, yeah, what a good guy and just um, amazing fly fisherman. To be honest with you, fish me, uh, he can fish me, outfish me all day. So if you guys are, are good buds, you must know what you're doing. He, well, you're talking about not knowing somebody from from Adam and. I actually met him just on the side of the lake at Edson, um, so a, you know, a lake close to where he lived, because we both got, uh, we were fishing it on the same day, I don't know how many years ago, eight or nine years ago, and a uh, lightning storm came up. So, you know, we were both pretty adamant that we're going to fish and fish and fish, so we fished until the last possible minute, and then both of us headed to shore at the same time, and we're the only two knuckleheads sitting there in a thunderstorm, you know, trying to get our boats back on the boat trailer, getting completely drenched. So we strike up a conversation in the boat launch and found out we actually had some mutual friends, apparently. And that's, uh, that's how we actually ended up hitting it off. So that's cool. He's a big hockey guy too, isn't he? Yeah. His, he, uh, he still plays some, some adult hockey and I know his, his kids, his boys play hockey. So yeah, it's cool. Well, and I, I'll tell you what, something I did notice is his fly patterns, and he showed me some of the pike, kind of some of the smallie patterns that you guys are tying up, and I was I was blown away. They sure look great. You know, pike flies, like I've got boxes and boxes of trout flies, and I love tying trout flies, but a pike fly is like a production, you know? <laughs> it's like you sit down and you're committing, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit at my vice and open a drink, and like the next hour is going to be sitting here tying this fly that I hope gets chewed to complete pieces <laughs> by fish tomorrow. <laughs> it's kind of a different, it's a different mindset completely, but it's, man, I love like tying pike flies is so cool. How do you get a lot of action on, on a pike fly? It seems to me like there's either long, long trailers on them. Like what's, what's the trick to these, these long, long patterns? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm gonna. I actually have a couple here sitting that I'm gonna pull up so I can look and see what I'm doing here. One thing you want to do, obviously, is you're gonna pick. You're gonna pick materials that just have lots of movement, like natural movement, right? So, um, one thing that I had to even learn myself the hard way was, you you look at this and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I grew up spin fishing for pike and walleye, you know, and like you have a jig or you have some kind of other lure and it doesn't last very long because, you know, three pike eat it and it's completely chewed. It won't stay on, you know, it won't stay on the jig head anymore. And you're, so when you're thinking about tying flies for pike, you're going, oh man, like I'm going to, I'm going to put all this material on a pike fly and how's, how's bucktail going to survive 600 or 300 or whatever odd amount of teeth or how is, I'm going to, I'm going to put, you know, expensive saddle hackle on this thing. How is this, how's this going to manage? And you know what? Like those natural materials actually like you, you could probably get 20 or 30 pike on a pike fly tied out of long bucktails, saddle hackles tied on there to give, you know, some lateral line kind of look to the fly. And they have Mm -hmm. just great natural movement built in. So 
when I when I look at how am I going to design a pike fly, I'm thinking a couple things. Okay, one, if you incorporate two or three different natural materials in there, or a different you know a blend of natural and synthetics, then all of them move at a little bit of a different tempo in the water. So you know a bucktail, a stack of bucktail is going to move a little bit differently in the water than a saddle hackle is going to move. And then the flashaboo that you tie in is also going to move a little different than the other ones. So something's always pulsating. Right. That's a really good tip. Another thing I, I really like is whether or not I tie two, you know, I tie a fly with two hooks in it or I tie a fly with a hook in the front. Um, and then the back section is actually just like an, a shank that has no hook in it. And then it's connected with uh, a little bit of wire. Just having that that little bit of loose flow is going to really add a lot of motion. So when you stop, that back section is going to kick to one side or the other side, or even up or down. But it's just the front's going to stop, and the back section, which has a lot lighter weight because it's either a smaller hook or it's just that little tiny shank, it's going to kind of continue flowing a little bit. So um, I don't think you have to spend a lot of money on big fancy materials all the time. Like I'm the flies I'm looking at now, they're two types of flashaboo bucktail, uh, some kind of polar chenille. And I stacked a whole lot of Antron dubbing at the head just to build up some bulk. And I've glued eyes on just because a pike fly doesn't look good out of the vice unless you have eyes on it and they're going to fall off after 10 <laughs> fish and then catch another 30 without the eyes. It doesn't matter, but it looks a lot better in my hand right now with the eyes. So there's not yeah. a lot to them, but if you think about, if you think about which materials you're adding on and kind of, you know, the order you put them, I know it's hard to, it's hard to explain without seeing it, but there's just tons of movement built right in. Well, maybe what we should do is what I post this, uh, when I upload this podcast, maybe, uh, uh, when we promote it, we'll get some photos of some of your flies and, and, and I'll try to get that out there so people can see on Instagram or what. Oh, I can send you a couple pictures for sure. Yeah, perfect. What what's your go to colors for pike in your area? Like if you had to like these streamer patterns that you're talking about that are in front of you, what's your go to as far as color? Well, there's two. One, chartreuse. Right? Like they always say if it ain't chartreuse, it ain't no use. And the other one is white. <laughs> white with whatever is an accent. Like I I'm looking at one, it's white with olive. And then the other one is white with black. But otherwise okay. it's chartreuse and white with something. Right. Yeah, white white is a, a color that comes up uh, a lot. A lot of people seem to like that we interview on the program as far as streamers. Just it, it, its visibility is exceptional in certain types of water. I'm sure its its visibility is great up here. The big pike food is going to be whitefish. So I mean, mm. even from not even just from an attracting standpoint, but from a they're used to seeing this as a natural food source kind of idea. Like the white is just a really good one to go with. I just think it, it stands out so well and like, it's hard to tie a white streamer that doesn't look like a natural thing to eat. It's, yeah. you know, it's tough. If you, have you got any trips planned in the next little bit in your area to either chase pike or trout? Well, I've got, uh, I've got a trip planned hopefully next week and we're, we're going to kind of play the weather by ear. The temperatures have really skyrocketed here. So, you know, the last two days where I live here, we've been under a heat warning. So the Stillwater mm-hmm. trout is really, I think we might be, I might be waiting on that until September. If, 
the streams go because the other the flip side of that is we've had so much rain like unbelievable amounts of rain all the streams are also blown out so it's hot but we're getting you know the rivers are all flooding so i can't do the the grayling that are sort of close by so next week my buddy and me are we're playing it by ear we're gonna either go up north for me a little bit and target try to target some big pike hope the weather or hope the water is not too hot or we're gonna we're gonna do some trout in a couple of the lakes that we know it gets to about 35 feet deep in the middle and we mm-hmm. might go see if we can do some of the summer blood worming or deep dragonfly thing and hopefully pull out a few fish i was gonna ask you your opinion on this nick so um I'm where I'm at. It was pretty warm last weekend. We're, uh, we're talking Celsius here. So we're in the thirties and it felt like the doldrums are kind of starting to set in. I hate to say the D word, but it felt that way. What's your go-to and you might've just alluded to it, blood worms, but what do you like to do when, when the water warms up and and you need to go down deep for those trout? Oh, well, yesterday. So Devin and myself were on a lake by his house in the day. We got out to the water maybe 8.30 in the morning and uh, the water was, well, 64 Fahrenheit. So what is that, like 16 or 17 degrees maybe? Mm-hmm. But it, you know, still tolerable for trout, not too bad. And that's right on the surface, right? So it started really, really good. And it the day ended up, the water was 22 Celsius on top through the course of the wow. day. And what we, we just kept going deeper and deeper and... I did get, I got one on the dangle there with the sinking line, but the the best action we got was just toughing it out with the long leader with the indicator. And we we split it up between uh, a vampire leech and a a blood worm underneath it. And we, you know, it was about 50, it was about 50-50. So did you do any throat samples on these fish? We did, we did a couple and it was, it was really odds and ends. It's Daphnia size 28 chronomids that there's no way you're going to match this thing. The odd water boatman that's kicking around, but it was all the throat samples we've done on any fish in the last week or two has been really just, there hasn't been a major hatch or food source that they're keyed on. It's more just opportunistic feeding is what it looks like at this point for us. It's funny how that, and I, we found the same thing the last few times I've been out. It wasn't like, you know, earlier on in the season, it was chronomids, chronomids, and maybe some mayflies, maybe some damsels, but they seem to be keying in on something. But as a fly fisher, it is a little frustrating when you get to the water, you want to catch that first fish so you can get a throat sample, say, what are these guys feeding on? And then it's all over the map or they're empty. Yeah, it's, and you know, when they're, one of the benefits I guess that we've got out here is we can fish up to three flies, right? So when it's, when it's really tough fishing, I'll typically, whether it's with an indicator or with a fast sinking line or with an intermediate line or with whatever kind of setup you want to go with, I'll basically go whatever the time of year is. I'll take a major food source just from that season. And then I can always gamble with something else just, and you can switch it up a little more easily just so if you are, you know, quote unquote, stumbling into fish, you at least are kind of edging your bets a little bit. So, you know, if I go with a leech and a blood worm, well, there's barely a fish in existence in July that if you've got a leech or a blood worm in its face and it's going to feed it all, you're going to catch that fish, you know, 
mm-hmm. that that does help us out a little bit here. But it, I'm with you. It's it's not the easiest all the time. And one of the one of the things we actually like to do out here is we'll go with a Type Six line, and we'll just put a booby on the end, and we'll just let that get right to the basement, right to the bottom of the lake, and uh, hope to just drum up some active fish using an attractor pattern. Sure. You know, you know, one thing I find interesting, um, people assume just because you have a podcast, you can catch fish or just because you have the social media site with all these gorgeous fish pictures, you're always lights out. I'll tell you a quick story. The other uh, day I got out on a lake that we always have like lots and lots of fish and we weren't skunked, but it was pretty darn close. We had to work and, and there's something to be said about when you get it handed to you, you know, you get humbled and it, you know, it makes you want to come back and try and figure out the puzzle. It totally does. And, uh, I mean, I don't get, I don't get skunked, skunked too often, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of, you know, there's enough days where you don't, like you said, you don't quite nail them. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's, that's part of the motivation to go back. I think if it was, if you went out every day and you knew, okay, well, today I'm going to go catch 40 fish and I'm going to catch six fish over 18 inches and I'm going to catch a 22-incher and, you know, why would you go? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I, I can remember growing up, uh, friends of ours had a, a, a their own fish pond and it was just full of brookies and rainbows and every single cast as a kid. It's great when you're, you know, eight years old, nine years old, every cast, there's something on the end of your line, but... After a while, it becomes a little monotonous, and, and you kind of almost appreciate the, the relaxed part of it where there's nothing going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And you know what? Actually, where we where you know, Tim, Andy, myself, my brother grew up, there was a, a farmer's got a few spring-fed ponds. And I say ponds, but, you know, they're, they're pretty good size. Like, you know, the small one is five acres. The large ones would be, you know, over a dozen for sure and maybe 15 and they're, they're spring-fed and they're, they're crystal clear. And I remember there was one summer, like, the fish weren't having anything. And so I just started going earlier in the day and earlier in the day thinking to myself, well, there's got to be some time these fish are just hammering everything, and I'm just missing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I ended up finding out is that these fish at daybreak and only daybreak until about, you know, they're 5 a.m. until 8 a.m., they're in two feet of water, and they're eating size 24 Hialeah shrimp. <laughs> but, you're, but, but the difference was then I could go and sight fish to them. So you're right. seeing them cruise. And what I would do is I would tie my, and I did, I went and I still got, well, ever since I went there, I've still got the same batch of shrimp because I've never used them anywhere else. But I've got a whole bunch of size. I didn't get 24s. I got 22s. And I tied little tiny scuds on a size 22 and I would fish it like 20 inches below whatever dry fly, like a little caddis or like a tiny little hopper, just something to keep it from sinking to the bottom. And I just went and sight fished to these guys. And it it did feel good to crack that code. (laughs) It wasn't handed to me, but once I figured it out, it kind of felt like it was handed to me because I had their number at that point. But that's that's the moment that you go, you know, because we all have those days, especially cronmid fishing can be like that. You might be doing something just a little different than the next person whether it's size whether it's depth but you just have it dialed in and those are the days that you kind of get you through the winter it 
It really, really is. And, um, and some days I think it's, I, I actually, I truly believe this, that there's some days that there's nothing like I could switch my tippet diameter to identical to whoever's in my boat and whatever. And I just think there's some days that it's not your day, it's their day. And you could honestly be doing the identical thing. I've actually switched rods with people just said, here, you take my rig, I'll take your rig. And then the next three fish go to me or my friend or whoever was, was, was catching fish in the first place. And they're still <laughs> catching them. It's just, it's just the way it is. I've, you know, one time we were on, and this lake isn't a secret, so I don't care, but it's, it's Muir Lake and it's, uh, it's 25 minutes West of Edmonton and it's our kind of the Edmonton local trophy lake. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's kind of a slough, but you can get some really nice rainbows and browns in there. And in its heyday, you would see 25 boats on this 50 acre lake you know, really, really pounded. So my friend, Tim and I, we were, we had the fish, like you said, dialed in on our coronamids. We had had this, this little wind drift that worked out perfectly. And there was this guy, you know, a hundred or 150, 200 feet, whatever to our, to our left, who wasn't doing very well, even though he was like in the same depth, the same, and I knew the lake. So there's the same little trench there and just, he wasn't having it. So I called him to the back of our boat and I said, here, here's the coronamid we're using you know, we're at this exact depth, like, you know, here, here's a fly go. I hope it works for you. And then, so he's kind of rowing back and I, I say to him, but now, you know, the next three fish you catch are going to be on the fly you had the whole time. Right. And he kind of laughs at me that sure enough, he, you know, he goes back, puts our fly on and then he does, he catches a couple and it was on the fly he was using the whole time. Anyways, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with the fly that we had given them. It's just, wow. sometimes it's, it's fishing, you know? I That's think too, sometimes like this will sound kind of woo woo, but I think if you almost like your energy continues down to that fly, like if you're super confident and you're going lights out, it almost doesn't matter what you do. Sometimes it's just going to work. You're in the zone, right? You're just yeah. if you watch basketball. Like you just, you get those shooters and they could be halfway out of bounds, off balance, halfway to the center line and they could turn and do a fadeaway three and it's in and the next seven shots they make are going to go in. Like once you're dialed in, I just think you can't miss. You're going to, you're going to pay attention if you're indicator fishing to every little twitch of that bobber and you're going to be setting the hook versus the guy who's had a rough day. Like, you know, he's going to watch it kind of twiddle seven times before you realize you should set, (laughs) you know, and I've been on both, I've been on both sides of that. I'm not, you know, it's everybody has been, I think do you do any competitive fly fishing? It sounds like you might be into that a bit. You know what? I had done it once. I did okay. It's not really, I have nothing against it. Just mm-hmm. not really, I, you know, my time is precious. And uh, I prefer to go fishing with my friends, my family, when I've got time yeah, off. I get it. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm like that too. I, I just I just like to ask because I could tell you seem like a guy that really wants to figure it out, really get dialed in, and that seems to be the personality that a lot of times is also doing it competitively. Yeah, I I love to get it dialed in, but I like you know, I have a tough time. I'm not uh, cutthroat enough, if that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got gotcha. you. If is there anything you'd like to see us do differently, Nick, in the sport of fly fishing? Is there anything in your mind that we could be doing uh, a little better? As a whole, I actually think fly fishing is at a pretty good place now. I think um, 
one of the positives of you know the online fishing community in general is that there's there's something for everybody now if you want to be competitive there's tons of it if you want to just be a joker you know and be super relaxed and just go hang out with your buddies and your you know and go camping and go catch some fish like there's a place for that if you want to be an expert and you know go online and be an expert there's a place for that too and I think that's fantastic I think one thing that's kind of getting lost and I see it and it doesn't matter where I see it uh, I you know it's it's everywhere is I see some of the courtesy in fly fishing could be better and I think that that goes both ways um if you're out there on a rough day, you know, it's not easy fishing and a lot of people are struggling, but you're doing okay. I see there's a lot of encroachment, you know, people kind of getting right up trolling in front of where you're fishing or um, coming right up to somebody else, not really respecting that. Well, this, I don't know this guy and me driving my boat over there could be like, you know, messing with what they're doing. But I also think there could be, you know, some people are overly secretive with what they're doing. You know, I, I'll spill the beans at the boat launch. Somebody says, Hey man, like, what were you, what were you doing out there? I'll be an open book. I'll open my fly box. I'll probably give you a couple of them. Yeah. People who wouldn't tell you anything. And so I, I think the, cur- yeah. but it, you know, both sides of the courtesy thing, respecting other, respecting other people's space, plus also helping, helping people out. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like give the person next to you a hand if they need it. And if they don't like, just give them some, give them some distance. Like some, I, that's, I hear you there. If I find that, especially with coronavid fishing, cause a lot of times there's certain specific spots you pretty much have to be in, or at least in the general area. And, and sometimes, you know, um, you want a little more space out there than, than people cutting right in front of you. Yeah. For when I, when I talk or, or when I, have written about it or whatever. I used to do uh when, when Dave, cause Dave actually, he, had, Dave Jensen had owned the Alberta fishing guide, him and his wife, Amelia, they owned the Alberta fishing guide. And one thing they did there was they started an online segment called the fishing forecast. So we basically took the weekly conditions in and we wrote, they had a walleye guy and Dave and Amelia did streams and they had people write about the bow river and the streams down South. And they had me do, uh, a stillwater fi- fly fishing segment for what, so what people could expect for the next week based on the conditions and hatches. And one thing I always wrote about was it's typically out here, at least, you know, where we are, it's typically not where exactly on the lake somebody's fishing. Like that's not why they're catching fish. You know, we got, we have lakes that are 30 acres, you know, 40 acres and they're stocked with, somewhere between five and 8,000 trout a year. Like there's lots mm-hmm. of fish, you know, there's lots of fish. It's not about where they are. It's about the type of water they're fishing. Right. If they're out near the weed beds, like then you shouldn't be out in the middle of the lake. If they're hammering fish, like you should go find a weed bed. You know, if, if they're out in the deep water catching fish, okay, now you should go try to find some fish out in the deep water, but it's typically, you know, and this is from where we are here. It's typically not a specific spot on the lake right. so much as a type of water on the lake. And I think, uh, people, 
people forget that, and it mm-hmm. comes with experience. You know, if you if you only fish five or ten days a year, you don't necessarily have the have the background um, data bank built up. You know, in your head, I yeah. guess. It's funny when you when you hit a lake, and you often I often see people fishing just right up and down the middle of it, and then you're going like, okay, so if you're really truly fly fishing most of the time those fish are going to be on the drop-offs are going to be either in the shoals or just where the where the deep water meets the weeds and if you follow that usually you can't go too far wrong you shouldn't get skunked if you follow that like you might not you might not be you know the guy on the lake catching the most fish Mm -hmm. if that matters to you right but find me a weed bed in 15 feet of water and like i shouldn't get exactly that's kind of you know there should be some fail safes, yeah. right? And that should be one of them. And from there, you can kind of gauge, okay, what's this fish eating? If it's eating, you know, things you're going to find in deep water, well, maybe go a bit deeper. Or anchor your boat on a drop-off, like you said. And some casts, you go shallow mm-hmm. side. Some casts, you go deep side. Let it sink deeper, let it sink not as deep, yeah. you know? Where, where are the fish splashing? Exactly. Even if they're splashing but it's 30 feet of water. I'm probably not going to fish on the top. I'm, I'm probably going to go there, but I'll still fish down on the bottom or at least most of the way. Well, down. I used to do stupid things like you just know, throw like, a chronomet on and just start fishing it and then start thinking, well, wait a minute, the chronomets aren't coming up here, but it looks like there's a bunch of shucks on the water over there. <laughs> like, you know, there's certain things that you just yeah. sometimes, I, I get find, all like, find the shucks. Yeah. Grow yeah. up wind. Yeah. When there is no shucks, you're probably where the hatch started because they're coming up there and then the shucks are going downwind. That's right? a good so quote. There, there are those things that you should be... I like for. that. I'm going to use that. I mean, I think we all do it. <laughs> Don't, I, hope it <laughs> I hope it works. Everybody's, everybody's done all... I mean, all these mistakes we're talking about, like we've yeah. all done them. Yeah. You know, on those frustrating days when you're desperate, I'm, I'm out there searching random parts of the lake when I haven't caught that many fish, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, good stuff. Well, I really want to thank you for for joining us tonight. You know what we should do, though, Nick? Uh, before we let you go, I'd really like you to get your Instagram handles out there. Um, I know that we can find your articles in the Alberta Fishing Guide and various other uh, fly fishing uh, magazines or articles. Where can we find you online? So you can find me online at Instagram at the Drag Free Drift. That's my Instagram handle. And uh, yeah, check it out. There's, I mean, there's a mix of stuff on there, but don't be afraid of sending me a message if you'd like a little bit more information. How important is it to fish with a drag-free drift? <laughs> it's Sometimes it can be overrated. <laughs> well, on, okay. uh, <laughs> it's, uh, if, you're, if you're on, sometimes on, on flat water, I was talking about flat water brown trout streams, you, you know, you throw your fly out there and the water's only moving six inches a second, oh, you can, you can twitch and strip that caddis or that hopper, pop, 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 and then, and then you let it drift a little bit more. And then after a few more feet, you pop, pop, pop it again. So I don't know. Yeah, It's up to the fish how drag-free drift it has to be. So check him out at drag-free drift. That's uh, Nick Slikanich out of northern Alberta, Athabasca. Hey, Nick, next time you see yeah. Devin, would you do me a favor? Would you put a little put a little diesel on the end of his leader <laughs> for me? Sure. Awesome. No, diesel. Diesel. Yeah. 
Yeah. Might slow them down a little <laughs> Sounds bit. Sounds good. But thanks for joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. And you have a great okay, season on the water. Work. Thanks, you too. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Thank you.